And uh, welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is episode number 98, released on December 5th, 2018. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the podcast on your app of choice, including iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud, and don't miss the new episodes coming out at least weekly. Today we are going to talk about uh, Uber's latest fine in Europe, about insects as the food of the future, about the maker movement, about the problem with employee stock options, and much more. We also have, as usual, a pre-recorded interview, this time with Panayotis Filimis, the CEO of Gravity, who will talk about the startup scene in Cyprus. We're also going to talk about upcoming events and share books and stories and whatnot we have come across recently. I am your host, Andre Degler, as usual, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today by Natalie Novi our research analyst and feature writer. Hi, Natalie. How is it going? Hi, Andre. I'm doing well. I'm very sad that I am not joining you in Helsinki this week for Slush, but it looks to be such an awesome week, and I hope you have a great time. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm very much looking forward to uh, the conference. So the moment uh, this will go out, it's going to be right in the middle of the event. So we can just hope that everything is going to go great. And I'm sure that there will be the live stream. So you can at least watch the most interesting uh, keynotes uh, back in Edinburgh. Definitely. And and also for those of you listening to the podcast, and if you see Andre at Slush, Please tell him what you think about the podcast. He would love to hear your feedback. Uh, always, always happy to uh, talk about uh, the podcast, but also about uh, anything that is uh, connected to the European tech scene. So if you have anything to say or if you just want to grab a coffee and meet, uh, let me know and we will find a time. Now, let's move on to the stories of the past uh, seven days. Uh, I will start with the story about Uber's latest fine that it received in Europe. Last week, Dutch and British authorities uh, fined Uber for a total of more than one million US dollars for a data breach from two years ago, from 2016. The breach led to the personal information of 57 million people to be exposed to hackers. The data that was exposed included uh, full names, email addresses, and phone numbers, so so that's uh, quite a bit of information that you would probably not want the hackers to see. There were 2.7 million victims among Uber customers in the UK and uh, much less uh, some 174,000 people in the Netherlands. Interestingly, at the same time, the fine imposed by the UK was actually much smaller uh, than the one of the Netherlands, about uh, 500,000 US dollars versus almost 700 US dollars. And in the US, where the most of the victims are located, Uber paid a much bigger fine of 148 million US dollars. But the most serious part of this incident is not even the breach itself, uh, but rather how Uber reacted to it and what the company uh, did afterwards. What happened is Uber just stayed silent about the story for a year and even paid the hackers $100,000 just to delete the, the data and conceal that the breach ever happened. And that's pretty much an equivalent of saying, yeah, screw you people, we don't care about your privacy at all to all of its customers. 
It's also interesting that if the breach happened now, uh, this year for example, Uber would probably have to pay much, much more because of the GDPR coming in force uh, this May. Uh, the fines outlined in GDPR could reach up to 20 million euros uh, or 4% of global annual revenues of the company fined and this is definitely so much more uh, than just uh, $1 million uh, for Uber. Uh, in a statement, uh, Uber said that uh, the company is, I quote, pleased to close this chapter on the data incident uh, from 2016. The quote ends. Well, I bet uh, they are uh, because it seems like Uber uh, has uh, made it out of this situation largely unscathed, at least uh, in Europe. And I just do hope uh, that the increase uh, in data security and privacy savviness across uh, the board, as well as the increase of the fines uh, here in Europe, are going to make it at least not that widespread, uh, these uh, incidents uh, with the data happening in uh, big companies. So, Natalie, do you think you were among the victims of uh, the UK part of the breach? You know, I wasn't living in the UK during that time, but it's very possible that my information could have been shared as one of the US victims there is really no way of knowing if you were a victim or not. You would have to kind of go out publicly and like search for that information on your own. Uber doesn't seem like they're very forthcoming to announce that you might have had your information stolen. So it's something maybe I should check out. Yeah, I also don't remember getting any notifications uh, from Uber about this. Even though a lot of other companies actually tend to do that recently, sometimes you would just get uh, this sort of email that uh, would tell you what's, uh, what's happened with your data. And I do think that it's actually a good thing that it's happening. Anyway, let's move on. And uh, now it's uh, your turn, uh, uh, Natalie. So food of the future, what is that going to be? This is a really interesting topic, and there were so many interesting deals and investment news over the last week, especially in verticals that I have a keen interest in. For example, clean tech, such as the announcement that Sweden's Orbital Systems received this huge loan from the European Investment Bank, but also university spin-outs. Such, there was a 31 million US round into fluidic analytics from Cambridge in the UK. But this week, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into what was last week's biggest deal, which was a 40 million euro round that went to Innova Feed. Innova Feed is a French company that is developing an insect protein for the aquaculture industry. And so the aquaculture industry, they're raising insects for fish food that will eventually be used um, in farmed fish. And the company will be putting this investment into a new production site, which in this industry, raising insects is a key challenge due to the ecology and habitat needs of, the, of these animals. And that's why InnovaFeed's key innovation is a breeding model which specializes in using this certain fly that, that is native to Europe. And they're non-invasive species, and they're certified from the European Commission as being completely risk-free. What's also really cool about their production model is that it's a closed-loop system where the waste from the insect production is used as fertilizer for neighboring organic farms. Many people consider insects to be this really key critical component to address concerns in feeding the world's growing population. But farming insects sustainably and cost-effectively can be really difficult. And I learned about this earlier this year when I was speaking with Daniel Vock, the co-founder of Sens Foods, which is a, a Czech startup that makes protein and energy bars and flour out of crickets. 
their company really scoured the world to find just the right supplier of insects. And ultimately, they decided to build their own facility in Thailand. So crickets, for example, really need to be grown under specific environmental conditions, which can be hard to replicate or find naturally in Europe. And that's what makes the the case with InnovaFeed very different because they are using a native European insect. Despite some of the challenges in growing insects for food, both for animal feed and for human consumption, the potential market is really huge. And there are a number of really interesting European companies working in this space. So in April, German startup Bug Foundation launched their insect burgers made with insect protein from Protifarm, a supplier in the Netherlands. Protifarm is one of the world's leading suppliers of insect proteins and makes protein powders made out of buffalo worms. Today, the insect burger is available near you in supermarkets in Germany, Belgium, and in the Netherlands. Elsewhere, if you're keen to try some insect products, the Gofford Sisters from Belgium is a startup that makes pasta from small crustaceans, and another company from Belgium makes Beatles beer. So if you prefer your insects in a more natural style, well, the UK-based Crunchy Critters sells chocolate-covered crickets and silkworms, as well as mixed bags of buffalo worms, crickets, locusts, mealworms, and flying termites for your dining pleasure. So there's obviously a lot of creativity in this space and so many exciting companies working on innovative solutions to what is globally a really important problem to solve. There's also that huge market and in aquaculture industry alone, the market is expected to grow to be worth 290 billion US dollars by 2026. So if you're hungry for more, I'll leave a link in the show notes to a great list compiled by Bug Burger out of Sweden, who put together a number of companies working in this space. And they also make their own burgers out of, as you guessed said, insects. And just in case you're looking for a Christmas gift idea, there's lots of interesting finds in that list. So have a look at it if you are interested in trying insects for yourself. That sounds very interesting. Andre, are you getting hungry now? Well, I haven't had a lunch yet, uh, and it's uh, almost uh, it's almost 3 p.m. already, so I am hungry. <clears throat> I just Googled, uh, while you were talking, I just Googled buffalo worms, like uh, how they look like. It's not exactly the most appetizing uh, thing to look at, but at the same time, I am very curious uh, about uh, these sort of future foods, and I would definitely try and taste this uh, kind of burgers and bars. I think I actually tasted the bar before, but uh, burgers and uh, uh, flour and pasta, I would be definitely up for it. But I have to say, I live in the Netherlands, but I have never seen uh, those uh, burgers or whatever that stuff was from a protifarm, not yet. But I will definitely, I will definitely take a look uh, from now on. Yeah, so so protifarm is an industrial supplier, so they're basically making protein powders for lots of different European companies. And I think that's partially why we have such a creativity in a space is that we do have um, an industrial level supply of this very exciting new food. Right. No, it's, uh, I- I'm totally fine with it. And I kind of do believe that at some point in the future, we are going to just have this or nothing at all. And I would definitely pick this. 
Now, moving on in the in the agenda of today, uh, let's move towards the interview, the pre-recorded interview by our founding editor Robin Wouters uh, in conversation with uh, Panayotis Filimis, uh, the CEO of Gravity, who will talk about the startup scene in Cyprus, uh, not something you learn about uh, every day. Check out this interview and uh, I will be back uh, together with Natalie in a few minutes. Hey, this is Robin Lotus from Tech.eu, and I'm here in Nicosia, Cyprus, and I'm sitting now with Panayotis Filimis, who is the founder and CEO of Gravity, and he's going to talk to me a little bit more about the Cyprus startup ecosystem, which is uh, the reason that I'm here for. Uh, welcome, Panayotis. Uh, can you briefly explain who you are and what you do? Yes. Uh, hi, Robin. Uh, thank you for this uh, interview. Basically, I'm the founder of uh, the company Cyric. Uh, Gravity is, uh, is our incubator. Cyric is a high-tech company producing technologies in various sectors and gravity is our international incubator and uh, basically uh, within the last uh, few years we've been uh, accepting startups and investing in them you know, we have various startups starting from various areas we have like biotech we have uh, health we have uh, gaming we have sports in various sectors yeah, because basically the ecosystem is quite small in Cyprus and for this uh, reason we are open Uh, in our incubator to accept any startup in any sector. So this is my first time in Cyprus and I've been here um, two days now and I've been talking to a lot of people uh, about the ecosystem. Uh, if one thing uh, everyone agrees on is that it's indeed small, uh, but I'm wondering um, what is interesting about it? Like why would people need to have Cyprus on their radar? Yeah, it's a, it's a quite interesting question. Uh, Cyprus has some uh, remarkable results, I would say, uh, starting from the base of uh, high-tech and research. So the, um, the country has invested a lot on research. We have results in, in Europe on competitive calls that bring Cyprus uh, at the top, and especially also from the side of the companies. We have the biggest participation of companies in, in R&D competitive calls, uh, and that created actually a, a very nice environment for researchers, and that's why we have also a lot of uh, tech companies coming in Cyprus, uh, employing people, especially, I would say, on the computing and the IT sector. But the, the most important thing is like we at this moment, we, the government also is trying to do to bring in new measures in order to move on from the research to the innovation part and the product. So the, of course, the, the small industry has done a few things, but uh, let's say the ecosystem without the, also the, the research institutions producing technologies and bringing to the market that will make actually the difference and showcase Cyprus that this talent pool plays and showcase actually with the, with the technology products because at this moment you cannot show it off. We as Gravity, we're going to have a few startups pro coming out with product within the next year that are quite unique, uh, of course, outside Cyprus. And we believe that's going to be the first step to the outside world that there is something going on in this country. Uh, and more especially also together with the tax incentives and the startup visa and all the other, let's say, um, benefits that a, a startup would have in, in Cyprus, it will make it actually a very attractive place in the future, I would say. Right. Um, from the conversation that I've had, capital seems to be a bit of an issue, uh, the availability of, uh, of you know, investor uh, cash for seed and early stage companies. Um, do you agree that that's a problem? And do you think that's something that needs to be fixed quickly? Yes, of course. Uh, it is a problem and it needs to be fixed quickly. 
Um, we are Sarit being the business innovation center of Cyprus, accepting everyday inquiries from different innovators, teams, professors, PhD graduates with coming up to us with technologies. And we, we, we see that uh, uh, we cannot accept uh, all of them and we just select a few, uh, but they have no other alternative. So there are no even angel investing funding, especially in the initial stage. We do have an association, but um, uh, because also of the problems on the deal flow. Uh, so we are stuck basically. So you have uh, on two aspects, you need some angel investors that will start investing in, in some uh, teams and startups. You need the highest capital for the technologies that will be, let's say, coming out from the universities and let's say taken by smaller companies and making products. So we are missing actually the early stage investment. We are missing the high risk capital for the high tech because you need it there. Uh, and uh, there are actually some moves from the government at this moment to start fixing it. We also from the private sector, we are trying to educate the system to um, bring like uh, trainers and, uh, and people from, from Europe to teach both of them of how to get better prepared so they can attract better the angel investors, which is a little bit more difficult. Uh, because on the VC side, if you have a really mature startup with a nice product, then it's very attractive to everybody. But we need really too much time to, to get to that point. So we need the angel investing. We need the highest capital on the early stage on high tech. This, these are the things that really needs the, the, the ecosystem at the moment. Yeah, there really seems to be, be a huge gap for that, for sure. Um, in terms of verticals, is there anything that Cyprus is really good at for whatever reason, historical or because of you know, future potential or specific talents that you have here? Yeah, I would say in, on the talent level, I would say ICT. ICT is paramount. So there are a lot of uh, foreign companies coming here uh, because also the tax incentives and are employing uh, a lot of talent, mainly from the, I would say, from the software uh, side, I would say. The hardware, unfortunately, we don't have actual manufacturers. Uh, so there is not a lot of traction in the market on, on this and not a lot of experience, I would say. Um, and so the, um, definitely on the talent pool, uh, I would say that one. But for the sectors... I will start with the sectors that are quite interesting for a startup to start with and have, let's say, good success and good revenues in, in the country. And this is definitely tourism. We have more than three times, more than four times our population coming here. It's a very healthy environment. Uh, so a startup in tourism tech, it will thrive here, I would say. It will be a fantastic place. Shipping and maritime, we are like, I think at the moment, number fourth in Europe or seventh in the world. So that means you have here people that they can help you go international. So it's a nice environment. FinTech and Forex, it's also an industry that is booming. Blockchain, although it's at the initial stages, we have a lot of interest from specific universities working on blockchain. The government is putting a lot of effort on that. They are creating committees at this moment. Um, that is also an interesting area. Other than that, I would say for, for a startup to come here uh, and work on a specific sector uh, that's outside, let's say, this one, although it's a nice environment to start, but if they want to scale up, they, they definitely need to live from this place. But of course, they still can have the company and have all the incentives that, that the environment actually brings in. Right. Um, so on a government level, uh, you mentioned government a few times, but I really want to know your 
own personal opinion on if the government is being supportive enough of uh, entrepreneurship and you know new investment in going into emerging technology and startups. They have been uh, supportive at the level of, uh, I would say, the funding, but uh, on the implementation, I wouldn't say that they were really good on this part. Um, but there, there is, let's say, there very recently actually, there was an announcement of uh, employing um, of um, having a, a, for the first time uh, the chief scientist of Cyprus, uh, and this would be very important uh, because. Uh, it's at this moment that we need to make the step from too much research and too much focus on the academia going, moving on to products. And uh, part of the investment is something that's missing. They know it. And we hope that in the future they will make the right moves. Uh, and this is actually also a part for us coming from the private sector uh, to really educate them, you know, what is required and bringing in Cyprus people that they have experience from Europe and abroad uh, and really expose what are the other ecosystems doing to improve. It's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time, uh, but I can see the potential. And I've also met the chief scientist yesterday here at Gravity and was most impressed by you know, his ability to sort of identify the problems and his seemingly willingness to, to do something about it. So, um, But thank you so much for sharing your vision on the Cyprus startup ecosystem, and I wish you all the best, uh, both professionally but also in terms of a, a startup scene in general. Thank you very much, Robin, for coming to Cyprus and uh, really helping us to move forward. Thank you very much. Hello and uh, welcome back to the podcast of Tech.eu. This is Andre Degler, joined today by Natalie Novik, and we are discussing uh, the news of uh, the past week together with the most interesting things that we wanted to share with uh, you. Now it's time to talk about uh, the calendar and events uh, coming up in the next few weeks. Natalie, is there anything you are looking forward to? Well, for me personally, my calendar is a bit lean, but this week I really wanted to take time in our event section to highlight the ending of CBIT, which is the, was the German IT conference that was once the world's biggest IT event. And it started in 1970 and at its peak hosted up to 850,000 visitors. And they've announced last week that they've canceled their 2019 event. So in, in some corners of the internet, there was some mourning, but generally across the board, there wasn't too much from the European tech and startup scene, at least from, from my observation. As the event had really attracted fewer attendees in recent years, and, and what they mentioned, the digital economy has reduced demand for trade shows. So the door isn't entirely closed for CBIT as the brand expects to live on in different forms of events around the world as it has in the past. And last time I was at CBIT's big event in Hanover, it was in 2017. And of course, the event of this magnitude is really quite a spectacle. But I do see where some of the critiques of the recent years have come from. But on a happier note, the big news, of course, this week is Slush, and I hope many of our listeners will have a chance to go and to please meet Andre and, and tell him about your favorite cryptocurrency. So, Andre, what are some of the events you're most looking forward to at Slush this year, and what are the must-sees on your list? So I am definitely going to try to avoid everything that has blockchain or cryptocurrency in its title. <laughs> but on a serious note, 
I'm generally very much interested in uh, pitching events, so uh, the competition and uh, maybe other side events uh, about it. Then I'm also going to a few ecosystem talks that I already marked in my calendar. Uh, also, Slush is very famous for its side events that uh, take place both uh, during the main program, but also in the evenings and mornings uh, somewhere else. And uh, I also already have a bunch of uh, events planned and I'm really looking forward to them. But most of the time, I think I'm going to be hanging around the media area and recording a few interviews for this podcast and the future people that I'm writing and hopefully we'll have a chance to uh, to do some networking and just talk to people from different ecosystems across Europe. So if you are one of those uh, people, uh, please let me know and let us meet. Uh, speaking of Sebit though, uh, it's uh, interesting. Last time I was there, I think was in 2010. It might have been also the first uh, time I was there as well. It's kind of kind of nostalgic. I don't know. It's kind of kind of sad to me that it's not uh, it's not going to happen anymore. And also saying that the trade shows are not needed anymore. I don't really see that a consumer electronics show in the U.S. is getting any problems uh, with the attendee numbers and numbers of uh, different companies, including startups, including European startups, uh, coming there in uh, in scores. I wonder what the difference is between the European and American trade shows in this case. Yeah, and, and I find it kind of interesting also. And I think last year, CBIT welcomed over 180,000 visitors to the event, which makes it still the largest tech event in Europe, anything devoted to technology. And something I really appreciated was how you had lots of the big manufacturers, especially of industrial robotics and from different countries brought really interesting products that you really had a chance to see, um, things that you only usually get to read about. Also got to drive on the the first self-driving bus, the Easy Mile. Um, and it, that is not really feasible um, in lots of other smaller venues. So I, I am nostalgic as well, also very nostalgic for Niedersachsen, which doesn't have a very big tech presence at all. Um, and it was really the highlight of, of the year for, for the region. It is a bit sad, but curious to see how it comes back in, in what way, shape or form. But also it seems like IFA, another trade show in Germany, is going pretty strong. I'm just uh, checking out their press release about the latest uh, event that was uh, held in uh, September uh, 2018. And uh, they state that they attracted 245,000 uh, visitors uh, this year, which is, I guess, okay. And uh, they have not announced uh, any problems with the next uh, year's edition. So maybe just uh, both CBIT and IFA were a little bit too much for uh, one country or one region. And uh, maybe IFA will just uh, make it uh, make it through. Yeah, so so some maybe in this case competition is good. But as this podcast is getting a bit long, I wanted to share an event this week, which is the App Promotion Summit in Berlin, which takes place on December sixth, and it's held yearly at Berlin's Hotel Adlon, which is probably the most stately venue in the entire city and one of the most classiest tech conferences I've ever been to. And I was there a few years ago, and it was a great event. Really nice people put it on, especially for those that are building mobile apps, lots of lessons and masterclasses. And this year also is the second running of the App Growth Awards, which is held the same evening, and it recognizes the best in the global app marketing and growth industry. So if you're in Berlin, do check it out. 
it's a very nice, a friendly event. So in case you're interested, and if you're looking for more things to do this month, check out the event section of our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, let us know um, at the link in our show notes. So uh, next up in the agenda is uh, the favorite part of uh, both of us, uh, the recommendation part. So uh, Natalie, you can start. What is it that you would like to share uh, with the audience this week? I really want to highlight this interesting thing that came out over the weekend. And it's it's not really a, a book or an article, but more of a story um, that and a really interesting conversation that developed out of it. So it all started when Peter Levels, the really creative and successful Dutch developer and builder of things like Nomadless, Hood Maps, the Makebook, et cetera, he shared a new side project of his that he put on Product Hunt. So this project that he, he claims he built in 12 hours is called Maker Rank. And what it does, uh, I'll quote, it ranks your favorite indie makers and startup founders by 40,414,892 data points, including product hunt upvotes, Crunchbase, and Twitter followers, end quote. MakerRank was inspired by Clout Report, a tool that ranks rappers through crowdsourced data, and it immediately got traction across a number of platforms and was the, the, the number one hunt of the day for December 1st. Levels has a really big following on Twitter, which is his main communication tool as he doesn't use email. And soon after the launch, people were replying with comments of appreciation and also sharing bugs, which is a great way that he uses the community to get feedback on his products and make them better. So the comments generally initially started off very positive, but others were more contemplative, namely kind of questioning the value of vanity metrics or considering what is the point of ranking people or makers at all. And one take suggested that rankings make a competitive and toxic environment in the maker movement, one that disassociates us from the idea of building something of value. Others pointed out that the maker movement is all about the love of creation and not about hashtag winning. So Levels, for his credit, got involved in the conversation, retweeting some points made by critics, uh, but continued to argue that competition could be a great motivator and get more people involved in the maker community. So I'm not here to advocate for either side, um, but I think it led to a really important conversation and, and one that I don't think happens enough. And what it did was expose a number of things about why we build and what are some of the reasons for creativity and what is really important and what sort of role competition should play in all of this. And an important takeaway was that people build and create things for many reasons, some to learn, some to share, to give back, and others to profit. And one of these goals is not above the other. They're just simply different. So the ultimate value of a ranking mechanism that is agnostic to those goals can only be analyzed through that lens. So Ranking things is only meaningful if the methodology we use to rank them aligns with the metrics we also find important. So for MakerRank, those rankings were developed by the creator based on things he cared about, things like Twitter followers or profitability, which may or may not be important to the individuals that are featured. And coming at this from the research side, where it becomes tenuous is when these rankings take on an additional weight and that methodology is lost or discounted. 
So in my work examining startup ecosystems, there are a number of indices out there that rank them about what places are supposedly best for entrepreneurship and cities work really hard to move up the list without thinking about what factors go into the creation of those indices. But the label or the number that's associated with the city becomes what's important, even when the methodology of the ranking might not really apply to that specific situation, or even worse, is poorly designed. So you have to step back and think about what it is this ranking is actually useful. So too often, those numbers or rankings become a shortcut in which we measure ourselves. So it's important that we don't give them more credit than they're actually worth. So I wanted to bring this story up because as we come towards the end of the year, many of us look back on what they or their companies have accomplished. So if you're evaluating yourselves and you're looking at a ranking system like make a rank or comparing yourselves to others in your community, whether it's about taking on investment or growth, for example, does it really make sense to have the same evaluation criteria if you have incredibly different goals and importantly, incredibly different means on how to achieve them. So founders can be really hard on themselves. And what's something that's really important to keep in mind and to maintain some perspective on how to evaluate ourselves is very unlikely that your goals are just the same as everyone else's. So the measurement tools shouldn't also be the same. So that's something important to keep in mind when you're reflecting back. Yeah, this is a really, this is a really deep point. And but also a timely one, yeah. The the closer we get to the end of the year, the more reflection there's going to be around. So yeah, it's it's always great to uh, keep in mind that everybody has different goals, different means, and generally different things they want to achieve, even though they might look similar uh, from the side. Uh, moving forward to my own uh, uh, take on uh, what I would like to share uh, is a great initiative by Index Ventures, a VC firm, which uh, published a letter, an open letter to the European policymakers, which was signed by more than 500 European CEOs of startups and scale-ups. So the letter itself uh, is suggesting a series of changes in legislation uh, to fix the part about employee ownership of uh, companies, of startups. Uh, here is just a couple of paragraphs uh, from the letter uh, to give you a bit of a taste. Uh, the quote begins, without delay, we call on legislators to fix the patchy, inconsistent and often punitive rules that govern employee ownership, the practice of giving staff options to acquire a slice of the company they're working for. This isn't just a perk on top of a salary. Universally, stock options reward employees for taking the risk of joining a young, unproven business and give them a real stake in their company's future success. Stock options are one of the main levers that startups use to recruit the talent they need. This companies simply cannot afford to pay the higher wages of more established businesses. The quote ends. So the main issue that we're talking about here is that in some countries in Europe, like Belgium or Germany, for example, employees have to pay tax when they are granted an option in the company they work for before actually seeing any financial benefit at all. And this often creates really wrong dynamics, and I would say it kind of defeats the whole purpose of employee stock options. It's not, it's not an encouragement anymore if you have to pay a tax upfront before you even know whether this option is going to be worth anything at all in the 
year or two or three or five. So Index Venture, uh, which was the initiator of this movement, uh, they have also published a really nice guide to stock options for European entrepreneurs. Uh, the document is huge. It's like more than 100 pages long, and it covers a lot of different questions regarding uh, employee ownership, uh, both from the re regulatory perspective, but also just some practical things for entrepreneurs to uh, keep in mind. If you are a CEO of European Startup, uh, go uh, check out the document in the show notes. But also, I would uh, encourage you to consider signing the letter too, because I guess the more people sign it, uh, the bigger a chance we have to get to the policymakers and get these things fixed before it's too late. Great. And yeah, thanks for sharing that, Andre. This, I, I've seen it come across my feed pretty regularly. And a lot of people are are in support of this initiative. Um, and it's it's great to have a conversation sparking um, this important issue. I'm pretty sure we're going to have more than a thousand people signing it uh, within the next uh, week or two. And uh, the letter itself is due to be sent out on uh, the 7th of January, if I'm not mistaken. So by that time, I hope there is a sizable uh, number of uh, people who have joined the movement. Now, this is it for today's uh, podcast. I do hope you have enjoyed it. Thanks a lot for listening today. Uh, don't miss our new episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Just look for tech.eu podcast and you will find us. Please leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. This will help others find it and will mean a lot for us. Tell everyone you know for whom it would be relevant about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU, tweeting 24 hours a day, as well as Facebook and LinkedIn. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thanks a lot for joining today. Enjoy the rest of the week. Have a great time. All right. Thanks, Andre, and have a best time at Slush. Thank you. Talk to you all next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Oh,